coming up on Venture Voice. It's not necessarily true for all entrepreneurs. I mean, some entrepreneurs, now they have their reputation on the line. It's like, you know, they had a huge success. Do they really want to put their reputation on the line and maybe have a, a failure? The reality is, you know, I think that success has given me enough confidence that I don't care. Even if this company is a failure, I know that I'll have tried as hard as I can. And if we fail, I mean, maybe it's because someone did better than us, spent more money than us, or we made a big strategic mistake, but at least we'll have tried. I mean, uh, we'll put it on the line and we'll, mm. we'll have gone for broke. You know, hopefully we succeed. This is Greg Gallant. Welcome to Venture Voice. When I started Venture Voice in 2005, in those early episodes, I'd had people on who were more famous than Fabrice Grinda and who'd had bigger exits than Fabrice Grinda. He just sold Zingy for tens of millions of dollars when I had him on. But this episode with Fabrice Grinda that we're going to go back in time to listen to from 2005 was one of the most popular. I would always run into people who commented on it. I think it really resonated because Fabrice was completely open about his net worth at every stage of his career and very open about what happened with all of his experiences. So I think you're going to really enjoy revisiting this episode with me. There's also a part of the story that really resonated with me where he chose the wrong investor for a company that he raised over $100 million for and had an opportunity to have a life-changing exit. But that investor blocked his opportunity to get out, forcing him to merge with another company for stock. And then with the original dot-com implosion, Fabrice got out with less than a million dollars after having had a chance to be fabulously wealthy himself. And reflecting on that story stuck with me, and it's one of the reasons that I bootstrapped my businesses, Muckrack, and the Shorty Awards. Now, fortunately for Fabrice, as you'll hear, he did all right. He made tens of millions of dollars himself, starting his second company, Zynga. And he's since gone on, after we've recorded this episode back in 05, to become a prolific angel investor himself and launch many other companies. So... Fabrice has done all right, but let's rewind and hear how he got started. Fabrice, welcome back to Venture Voice. Thank you. It's good to have you back. Last time we had you on, we were walked into your office at Zingy, December 2005. I guess that's a little over uh, three years from now. All your items were packed up in boxes. I found out it was your last day, so it was just hours before you were leaving for good. So I imagine a lot has happened to you since then. A lot has happened. Let's kind of recap your career. Give me the Twitter size story for how you got to that point where you'd sold your company. Sure. So the, I guess my background is as follows. I was born in Paris. I grew up in Nice in the southern part of France and came to the U.S. for college. I went to Princeton. Then I worked for McKinsey and Company in New York. And then in 1998, you know, right time, right place, right skills, decided to do something in the internet. Not having any uh, brilliant new ideas to bring to the world, I decided to copy American ideas and take them to the rest of the world. So I came up with a nine business selection criteria, evaluated all the U.S. ideas, and chose eBay. So in 1998, I sold my apartment. I left McKinsey. I moved back to France and created a copy of eBay for Europe, for Southern Europe, and developed that for a few years and went through the ups and downs of, of the bubble days and uh, shared that story in detail in the last interview. 
late 2000, I sold that company, started looking for what to do next and realized that mobile media and mobile content was huge in Europe and Asia and the U.S. market is up for grabs. So I moved back to the U.S. in uh, July of 2001, created Zingy with the aspiration or the goal of building a large ringtone, wallpaper, cell phone game company. So basically selling mobile content to the U.S. market. Given that it was 2001, you can imagine the difficulties I went through trying to raise money. I mean, going to VCs and telling them I'm doing B2C telecom, which at that point were the two most hated words in the industry, ended up investing pretty much everything I had in that company and, you know, really struggling for the first few years, but ultimately became a huge success. I mean, sales of the company went from 1 million in 2002 to 5 million in 2003 to 50 million in 2004 to 200 million in 2005. So it was a wild ride and lots of fun. I sold the company in May 31st of 2004 for 80 million in cash to a Japanese publicly traded company in the same space. And because there was so much growth and it was a lot of fun, I basically stayed on for another 18 months. November 30th of 05, I thought my time there had run its course. I wasn't very happy with the shareholders and decisions they were making. So I decided to move on to greener and greater pastures. And so you, you interviewed me on December 1st, basically the day I decided to leave and to go and do the next thing. <laughs> so tell me about that experience. It's kind of lucky when entrepreneurs get a chance to sell at a great price. And I guess that was your first exit where it was like an exit that was a clear home run for you. I had other exits in the past, but uh, none of them actually ultimately led to me making much money for various reasons, you know, from the quarry stock collapsing to other reasons. And I also got lucky that a lot of the investments I'd made in 98, 99, there were small investments, which basically I thought were all dead, you know, by 2001, if you'd asked me to put a value in like these seven companies I invested in. In 2004, 2005, almost all of them exited successfully. Like one went public, you know, five were sold with like, five to 20x multiples and just one went under. So now it felt great to all of a sudden, you know, have come from like near bankruptcy, you know, missing payroll, missing rent payments to actually being extremely well off and to the point that, you know, I didn't have to worry about making money for the rest of my life. So tell me like, what was that like though? I, you know, it's this trade-off that a lot of successful entrepreneurs struggle with is that they have this company, they love it like you did with Zingy. They sell it. So on one hand, you know, they don't have to worry about being bankrupt. On the other hand, you had these troubles with your shareholders. So it's like you're going from being a broke master of your own world to being, you know, a well-funded employee. The transition was not too difficult at first because they let me do whatever I wanted to. But as they decided, you know, they wanted to go company in another direction, not let me invest in the product and, you know, take all the cash back to Japan. That's when the tensions started arising. And ultimately I realized, you know, it's not worth my time. Zingy was easier to sell, though, than the prior company, because Zingy, even though I loved what we'd accomplished with it and I loved working there, I was madly in love with the idea. I mean, Zingy violated one of my famous nine business selection criteria, which is never be in a business where there's risk of margin compression or disintermediation by suppliers and our customers. And in Zingy, the customers, the cell phone carriers are highly concentrated. You know, the top four account for 90% of your revenues. And the media companies are also highly concentrated with the like top four or five accounting for most of your costs. It creates huge risks of margin compression and disintermediation, which is ultimately why first I sold the company, you know, and B, why I never felt it was a platform where I was going to build a multi-billion dollar company from. And so I was actually rather happy to sell it knowing that risk existed. And in fact, a few years later, you know, it actually happened or came true in the fact that these carriers and, and, and media companies started compressing the margins and, and driving the economics away from that business. So having sold the company, 
you know, it wasn't your first company sale, but I guess everyone's different. Did you learn anything from that? Like, do you look back and say, hey, you know, I could have found a different acquire, change the terms, and maybe had a better fate? Or do yeah. you just think, hey, you had a home run, couldn't have foreseen what happened? You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. When uh, I sold Zingy May 31st of 04, the only numbers we had were Q1 of 04. So Q1 of 04, we had like 4 million in revenues, a million in profits. And if you'd asked me my expectations for revenues for 04 and 05, I would have told you, you know, I don't know, 20 million in 04, 40 million in 05. And ultimately, it ended up being 50 and 200. So mm. we ended up growing much faster than I expected. We even got a buyout offer later when I was working for the Japanese, you know, for over 100 or 200 million. So I could have sold the company for a lot more had I waited a year. But of course, had I waited two years or three years, given that the economics of the business changed, I would have been able to sell it for a lot less. So absolutely no regrets. You know, I don't know if it was Rothschild or Rockefeller, one of those who said, you know, the way they made money is by always selling too early. And I'd rather sell <laughs> too early than too late. And in this case, I'm very happy with the transaction that I made. And so no real regrets. Had I known though what the sellers or the buyers were like, I would probably have sold to another company because there was a better house for Zingy than, you know, a Japanese company supposedly in the same space, but really with no real synergies with what's going on mm -hmm. in Japan. And so a media company, you know, an MTV or a Fox, you know, interactive would have been a much better house for Zingy mm -hmm. than, you know, than the Japanese company, which didn't understand anything where the guys didn't speak any English and where you know, there were really no synergies between what they were doing and what we were doing. So why did you do it with them? They were the highest bidder and they were the most motivated to do the deal and was the easiest to do deal with them. But at the same time, we had private equity companies, you know, making us offers to, take, to just invest in the company at the same valuation. We had slightly lowered valuation offers from a few others. And the reason the story they sold, which was, look, we know what the future of this business is like because we're in a market which is just two years ahead of yours. And so what's happening in Japan and Korea, we will help you guide you through those changes was compelling as a story. The reality, though, is the U.S. market ended up developing in a very different way because the carriers in the U.S. decided that doing the Japanese approach of having an open walls where they only do billing and they take a 9% commission was not the way they wanted to go. They'd rather have much more control. And so in the U.S., we ended up with walled gardens where, you know, the care is taking 50% of the revenues. And so all the learnings from Japan and all the business models and the products that you could launch in a market where the carriers were only taking 9%, letting you launch whatever you wanted is very different from what the carriers mm. in the U.S. would let you do, where they would take 50% and not let you launch whatever you wanted. And so to recap how the deal went off, I think it was sold for $80 million and you had roughly half the company at exit? Yeah, pretty much. A bit more than that. It was paid over time, a bit more than half at closing. And then there was an earn at, which obviously mm. we blew out of the water. We hit all the targets, and so we got paid over the next two years or so. They say earnouts are often kind of hard to enforce and often don't end well. How'd it go for you? The targets were very explicit in terms of what we needed to hit, both the revenue and the profitability side, and we hit all the targets. So it was clear that they had to pay us, of course, because they had ran into financial difficulties in Japan. They balked at making the, I guess, the third payment. They made the second. So we got into fight over that, went arbitration and basically settled and they essentially paid. So it was more complicated than I would have liked because we did end up having to fight a little bit and out of court, but ultimately, you know, got resolved satisfactorily. So I guess when I saw you December 1st, 2005, I would say like a, I guess, kind of a bittersweet thing that you're leaving, not on good terms, but it sounds like it was much sweeter than bitter. Oh, that. I was very happy. I mean, yeah. uh, the company had done fantastically well. I, I was proud of, the, of what I had built. I'd sold it extremely well. 
you know, the fact that I didn't like the guys who sold, who bought it, you know, ultimately didn't matter. And, you know, I now had the freedom and independence to do whatever I wanted for the rest of my life. So, so uh, let's just talk about what you did December 2nd, 2005. What did you do the day after you finished at Zingy? So the reality is I'd actually already knew what I wanted to do next. Yeah. So you withhold information from my <laughs> listeners. Well, you know, I didn't want to, you know, play my hand too early because, uh, in the internet, it's really easy to create a startup. I mean, these days are like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. You know, you get almost any site built and launched and, you know, see what happens. So mm. I wanted to make sure that I had the groundwork laid for the next company that I was launching. So December 2nd, I think I flew to France, wanted to meet a whole bunch of my French entrepreneur friends, basically went all around the world, meeting a whole bunch of entrepreneurs, mm. talking to them, you know, went on vacation, went skiing, et cetera. But, most of it, you know, I spent about a month and a half in Argentina, hardly on vacation, you know, ice climbing in Patagonia and hiking in northern Patagonia and exploring Buenos Aires, but really trying to convince a team of friends there to join me for the new startup. And these teams of friends were all the founding members and the top employees at a site called Deremate.com, which was an eBay of Latin America. Deremate was actually an offshoot of my eBay of Europe, which was called Auckland. So in... Uh, 1998, when I built my eBay of Europe, and everything was great. And a year later, a friend of mine from McKinsey said, hey, you need to meet these guys from Latin America. They're all really smart, HBS, BCG, et cetera. And they want to do something on the internet. So in June 99, I met them in New York. And they were telling me, you know, that they were trying to do something on the internet. And it's like, guys, you know, a year ago, I went through this very exercise. And the conclusion was, what you need to do is do auctions. Here's a business plan. Here's a technology. So basically, they took the Auckland business plan of technology, adapted it for Latin America, and boom, Deremate was born. And the CEO of that company and founder called uh, Alec Oxenford became a close friend. You know, and obviously worked closely over the years, both for Deremate and another company that he created that I invested in called Dinero Mail, which is a PayPal of Latin America. As luck would have it, in uh, late 2005, Deremate was bought by its major competitor called Mercado Libre, which is the eBay of Latin America. In fact, eBay owns 20% of it. And that company is not public on NASDAQ and worth about a billion, down from like two or three billion after its IPO a year or two ago. And so the entire Deremate team, which are people I loved and I'd worked with before and trusted and who knew auctions. And the reality is the difference between auctions and what I'm doing today is actually rather close. And I'm about to describe that in a minute. And so I went there to convince them that they should join me in building, you know, my new company, which is OLX. So what's that conversation like? So you went down to Argentina. So I went down to Argentina and I said, look, as I've done in the past, you know, when I start thinking of what to do next with my life, I go through my nine business selection criteria and I've evaluated all the different ideas and I'm looking at the various trends in the world. And I'm like, I've come to the conclusion that what we need to do is free classifies for the world. We need to take Craigslist, we need to improve it, and we need to deploy it globally. And the way I'd reached that conclusion was, you know, I, I love Craigslist. I mean, it's a great site, but I felt it was not progressing over the years. The product is still basically stagnated. And arguably, they were even violating some of the precepts of being a public service to the community, both by starting to charge in some categories like real estate or jobs, and by really not improving the site against scams, et cetera. And, you know, simultaneously, obviously, eBay was alienating its community of sellers by increasing the prices and changing the rules on them. So I felt, you know, we could do a better job. And looking at the market dynamics and trends, and there are five big trends in the world. You know, there's transition from offline media consumption to online media consumption. There's a transition from offline advertising to offline advertising. There's a transition from paid business models to free online ad-supported business models. There's emerging market growth with both GDP per capita and online media consumption growing faster in the developing world than the developed world. And number five, there's a big transition going on in the classifieds business. The classifieds business is a $100 billion a year business, online and offline. 
which historically has been dominated by the newspapers. You know, and if you look in the U.S. and the Western world, you already see a transition first to paid vertical sites like Hot Jobs or Monster, but then a free classified sites like Craigslist. And that transition is largely underway already in the developed countries, you know, in Western Europe and the U.S. But if you look in Eastern Europe or Latin America and Southeast Asia and most of the rest of the world, newspapers still dominate the space. They charge an arm and a leg. And therefore, there are no real online offerings. They're all fragmented. And so if you're trying to, you know, find a roommate or find a nanny or find something that you're not really willing to pay $100 a newspaper for, you're you out of luck. And so I felt, you know, let's build Craigslist 2.0 for the world. And so I went there, you know, gave them my story of what I wanted to build, which is, you know, next generation classifieds for the world, told them why they were ideally suited for it, because auctions and classifieds are very similar. And arguably, you know, classifieds is actually an easier business than auctions because you, you don't actually handle the transaction and, and the payment part of it. Convinced them this was a huge business and we're going to have lots of fun building it. It's going to be a brand new adventure and we never really work together. We're going to really, truly be able to work together, you know, by me piloting the company, you know, from New York, running products and M&A and investor relations and business development. And then, you know, in Buddhist is doing all the implementation of the product, all the technology, all the QA, customer mm-hmm. service, et cetera. So it took me a month and a half to get really get them excited because they'd been working really hard at Diremate and they needed a little bit of a break. But little by little, we got the team in place and we created the company. We didn't launch the site, but we incorporated the company in March 9 of 2006. So tell me... That whole month and a half, were you down there the whole time? Were you back up here and back down there? Like, what are the logistics like of, you know, you being this co-CEO in New York and convincing a team to work for you so far away? Well, that time is really easy because there was, we had not done anything yet. It was really convincing them to work for me. And so I flew there, spent pretty much all of January in Argentina uh, to convince them to do this. Then just went on vacation basically on in February. I took the entire month of February off, went skiing, went to see my family in France, et cetera. While Alec, who was the CEO of Deremate and was became the co-CEO of OLX, was assembling the team, convincing the core guys to join in. And then everything came together March 9th of 2006. We incorporated the company. We put in the seed money and we were off to the races. Now, in terms of how we manage it today, once we have all these people, it's different. So today, OLX is about 125 employees. We have 95 in Buenos Aires five in New York, 25 in Beijing, basically. Actually, we also have one in Moscow and one in Delhi. And so the way it's managed is Alec manages all the day-to-day operations down there, you know, from performance reviews to hiring new people to getting all the little things in the office working. And he also does, you know, if we do M&A, he'll do all the post-merger integration, making sure that people work well with the team. And he's also going to do all the PR for Portuguese and Spanish, whereas I'll do the frontline M&A, identify the companies, negotiate the prices. I'll do English PR and French PR, and then I'll do product prioritization, BD, and then in New York, the rest of my team, which are actually close friends all from my prior startups. I mean, the, the head of finance who's in New York was the head of finance at Zingy. The head of marketing was actually the country manager for France for Auckland, the auction site in Europe, and the head of mobile was also in New York was the head of mobile for Metic, which is a big dating site in Europe, which is run uh, and owned by a friend of mine. And so basically, I spend two weeks every three months in Buenos Aires. So I spend two months a year in Buenos Aires. Uh, I just came back. In fact, it was 20 days in Buenos Aires. And the rest of the time in New York for day, most of the time, but then I travel, you know, go a week or two a year in Beijing to see the team there. You know, I intend to go to Delhi and to meet the team there in a few weeks as well. And then and also do a lot of traveling around the world to do M&A and, and partnerships with different companies. So just to get into like kind of the practicalities of setting something up like this, since it seems to be a trend of people getting much more international with their businesses. 
when you incorporated the business, where you incorporated, what's it like to, you know, have equity and bank accounts and multiple companies when the company's at a small stage and doesn't have much infrastructure? Sure. So we decided to keep it simple and it's still simple today. I mean, basically it's a Delaware C Corp. We are shareholders in the parent company, which is the Delaware C Corp, which is OLX Inc. That company owns 100% of the Argentine subsidiary, which is purely a cost center. And that's where all basically the Argentine subsidiary, you can think of it almost as a, a development shop where that invoices a U.S. company for all of its services. And that's that even though OLX, and I haven't given you an update on how OLX is doing, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but even though OLX is in 87 countries, we don't have a local presence in most of these countries. We don't have companies incorporated. We don't have employees on the ground. We don't have offices. We've decided to keep it as simple as possible because ultimately we are a startup and, and there's a lot of power in centralization. I mean, you want everyone in the same place. So even though we're present in all these countries, really all of the work is done out of Buenos Aires and Argentina. Are there any challenges to it? Like we'll talk about financing soon, but just, you know, as you went along all the pieces between getting people to finance it, vendors, were there any complications or does everyone kind of get that now? It's com more complicated because I define a lot of the product specs and you know, the product vision and the priority from New York, even though the team is down there. But we maybe we stumbled upon a way of making it work where that works pretty well. We do a weekly uh, product meeting where we review the technical priorities and, and for the company every Wednesday. We have weekly call every Thursday with the Chinese office, you know, and I talk to Alec whenever it's needed, you know, every couple of days. Plus, every three months, as I said, I go down to Buenos Aires and we do quarterly review. And we also do the product planning for the next quarter. And so ultimately, even though we didn't really plan it out that way, it ended up working out that we have a structure that's relatively efficient and definitely takes advantage of the lower cost structure in Argentina. It hasn't been that complicated, actually. And then like, so your average day when you, know, you come into the office and it's not the weekly conference call. Do you do anything that, you know, really keeps you tied into Argentina or is it mostly just up here focusing on, you know, business development and all the other things you mentioned? The average day varies dramatically based on hardly luck. I mean, because I, we're trying to buy a lot of companies, so it might be identifying those companies or we might be talking to them. We might be trying to convince them to do a deal. We're seeing thing in the business development. There's still a lot of interactions with Argentina because, because I love products and doing the, you know, specification to finding the features, et cetera. But I'm not the one writing the detailed specs. I just come up with the concept. There are always questions in terms of, you know, should it be this or this? You know, what are the paths? So there are always little questions on the product that need to be answered and, and lead to basically daily interaction with both the designers and some of the developers or at least the VP of product who's down there in Buenos Aires converting my vision to, mm -hmm. into the product. And so it's a little bit of everything. I mean, my day, like probably the day of most people who work in the internet is a combination of. I am email and phone calls. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Do you miss being there with the team the whole time? Like you think back to Zingy and just, you know, like being able to kind of go to the bar with people or just kind of pop around people's offices and kind of hear what ideas are going on and feel the morale. I do miss it. I mean, because at Zingy, you know, we had a foosball table. We played foosball for lunch every day. You know, we'd go and we'd play poker, you know, every couple of nights mm. and, and definitely has a collegial atmosphere that I only get when I go there, you know, for two months a year. The good news is I do get it for two months a year. And the reality is Alec is really good at, at keeping it. And so even though I don't necessarily get it day to day, A, I feel it when I'm there. And B, Alec has really been fantastic at like keeping the culture young and hip. I mean, mm -hmm. for Buenos Aires, because we have, you know, free food, free drinks and everything in a big open space. I mean, for Argentina, I mean, we're like one of the coolest companies around. I mean, maybe in, in San Francisco, it's just every startup is like this young, hip, fun culture. But for Argentina, what Alec has done, you know, is actually rather unique. And so 
even though I'm not quite there, I, I feel it. And, and, and as I said, it still works. And, and frankly, I love being in New York. I'm in New York for mm. two reasons. A, arguably, it's a better market to raise money in. You know, you raise money in the high valuation markets like the U.S. and you sell your company ultimately in the high valuation market like the U.S. But then you spend that money that you've reinvested in the low cost countries like Argentina or India or, or China. So A, from a capital perspective, it's capital efficient. B, you know, a lot of the companies you want to do partnerships with are actually in the U.S. I mean, most of the companies we run classifieds for from Friendster to Photolog, et cetera, are either in San Fran or in New York. And see, ultimately, you know, from a personal preference perspective, I'd rather be in New York. I mean, New York, mm. my family is in Nice. There's a nonstop flight from New York to Nice. It's like six hours. You know, from Argentina, it's like 16 hours with two stops. Mm. The intellectual life and the energy in the air in New York is incredible. And it's also the city, you know, with the highest concentration of, you know, hot, single, smart girls, you know, <laughs> who would want to be anywhere else? Hard to argue with that. <laughs> so let's talk a little more just about how the business has gone. When we caught up last, we did a little interview on the blog and you kind of had the idea for OLX to me just now, kind of, you know, the, the intellectual justification for that. So as you got started and ramped up, did things kind of play out as you foresaw or were there surprises? There's only one real point in time in, in a company or actually maybe a few, but the, the main point in time in a company that's strategic is really your original idea. What is it I'm going to do? And then everything after that is all tactical and things never play out as you think. I mean, Executing on a startup and really any startup is really a lot of throwing it on the wall and seeing what sticks. And what we thought was going to be our key success factors and what ended up being our key success factors are fundamentally different. You know, the product features that we thought were most important, what ended up being most important were all fundamentally different. But to give you a sense of, you know, how OLX has played out. So the company was incorporated March 9th of 2006. We launched the site basically June 1 of 2006. So we've been live for three years, basically. A bit less than three years, but in the, in these three years, the company grew from like five employees to 125 employees. We went from being present in one country to being present in 87 countries and 39 languages. We went from no traffic to about 60 million unique visitors a month. We do over 400 million pages a month and we do uh, around 2 million new ads per month. And that's net of spam, net of scam, net of all the deletions and removals. So we have a fair amount of traction. We're now one of the largest, if not the largest classified site, you know, in Spain and Portugal and Mexico and Brazil. We're well positioned in Russia. We're well positioned in Poland. You know, we're getting a little attraction in China and India and the Philippines. So in pretty key markets, we're getting pretty big. And even in the U.S., even though we're still rather small, we've been able to attract a lot of listings and real estate and jobs, if only because Craigslist charges in those categories. And so mm. we've been able to attract, you know, a lot of people who didn't want to pay. Give me an example of one of those features where, you know, when you had your business plan, you're like, oh, man, this feature is brilliant, and it turned out not to be. So at the beginning, we we were going to offer a mixture of classifies, auctions, and buy now options to sellers because we felt that in the for sale category, we're not just offering a, a classified service. We might as well offer a, a, an auction service at like eBay, and, and there are enough dissatisfied sellers with eBay that it, it made sense. And the reality is... Because if you're running an auction or you're running a buy now service, you do need a rating system. You need more complexity. You need registration. It added more complexity to the site that the users weren't. I mean, all of a sudden, you had to explain why we're doing all these things. Ultimately, removing these options and just going simply with a classified offering increased the number of postings, increased the responses we were getting. So, you know, it was a case of less is more. We completely removed the auction and the buy now features on the site. And my instinct is we might actually might reintroduce them one day. But at that point, we'll be really big and users mm. will understand our site well and we'll be sophisticated enough to want more. 
at the beginning, you just want to keep it simple. At the beginning, for instance, another major feature is we were confirming the identity of everyone. If you posted an item, we would make sure the the email address you put in was your email address, et cetera. And the reality is because some emails automatically go in spam or, you know, people made typo, et cetera, it's just limiting the number of items on the site dramatically. And so small changes in terms of, you know, what is required to register, what features you offer when you post made a dramatic impact on the number of listings we're able to attract. And give me a sense of how rapidly you made these changes. So you launched it, I think you said June 1st, 2006. So did you start making these kind of big changes to the product like a week in, a month in, six months in? We used to do a release every week. And so every week we tried different things. And same thing with our monetization or advertising, for instance. I mean, we monetize through Google. Do we put the ads in two lines or one line? Do we put the link first or the text description first? So it's nonstop iteration. And so there's basically every week we were testing different things and we've kept testing different things. Uh, we moved to a two week release schedule in uh, January of this year because now we have a lot more traffic. We have a lot more to lose. So we don't want to make sure we don't screw it up and give the developers a little bit more time to build bigger projects. And so now every two weeks we're testing something new. Sometimes it works. Often it doesn't. And you know, if it doesn't, we'll stop and we'll try something else. It's like, what are you testing this week? So right now, well, we're testing a few things. What we just released this Tuesday, we released a new header for the site. So it's half the size of the prior header. The search engine used to be uh, separated from the header now and built into the header. And so because it moves everything up, we think it'll lead to more people clicking and viewing more items because the header takes less size, they'll see more. We also just launched featured listings, which means you can promote your listing on the homepage for $10 a week or at the top of the listings between $2 and $10 a week per category, depending on the category, mm-hmm. as a means of complementing our revenues. And we just launched that this Tuesday, the same day we did the header change, which launched it in the US, in Portugal, in Brazil, and in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And then uh, two weeks, what we're doing is we're retagging all of our advertising channels. And two weeks after that, we're going to start testing different types of advertising to see what works better or less well. And where do all these ideas come from? Are they mostly your ideas or are they people in Argentina? Are they the rest of the team here? Outsiders? It's a combination. Uh, A lot of the product ideas, so things like the header, et cetera, are usually mine. But a lot of the, let's say, the marketing ideas come from both the head of marketing and the head of finance. The revenue monetization Mm -hmm. ideas or optimization ideas. Traffic ideas often come from people in the SEO team that help us with their SEO. And, uh, and frankly, a lot of ideas come from everywhere. I mean, from customer care. So our own customers are sending a lot mm-hmm. of, and our customer care team send us a lot of ideas and pretty much all the programmers. If I look very recently when I was in Argentina, the core development team, I think, sent a list of 15 ideas and, you know, almost all of them were very good. So mm-hmm. we're implementing all of them. So. It's really a combination. Uh, we're, I'd like to believe that we're very open minded and, you know, we'll mm. take ideas. And the reality is often we're not even going to, even if ideas seem silly, often we'll still try it because in the internet, you never know, you know, you throw it yeah, on the wall yeah. and you see if it sucks. Do you keep on a whiteboard? Do you have a, a list? Like how do you actually do it? Logistically? Uh, okay. So logistically, all of our project of our ideas and our, our projects were managed in a, uh, project management system called Jira. I don't know if you know it, but it, there's another, an equivalent, which is a little track. But in our case, we use Jira and, you know, we put the mock-up in there, we put the description and then everything is organized on a release schedule. So my job is to work with the head of product and technology and the OLX side and the other teams and define the priorities with them. And we basically agree on what are the priorities for this release and the next release. And basically... How far out do you plan? So right now we're planned all the way out to November. Hmm. But it's not an absolute plan. It's a suggested plan. But of course, if, you know, if there's something we... All of a sudden we have a brilliant idea and we think, oh, we need to do this. It's much better than this. We move things around. I mean, it's mm. ma- let's say 80% of it remains fixed. And then on the edges, we move things back and forth. I'll be back in um, Buenos Aires in September. 
And in September, we'll basically, you know, a review what everything we've done so far and our accomplishments where we're late or on time, where work, where it didn't work. And we'll plan basically until January, February. And then I'll come back in December and we'll plan until March, April. And then I'll come back in March and we'll plan until, you know, September, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's an ongoing cycle, but, uh, we're not about to run out of ideas because the vision here is how do we take a free classified site that's horizontal present in every category and we make it as good as every paid vertical site. So how do we make it as good in jobs as hot jobs? How do we make it as good in cars as, you know, mobile.de in Germany or as truly on real estate, you know, for sales search? And you do that for every vertical, for every category. The amount of ideas we have, is, you know, and work there is to be done is rather endless. And so hmm. we have ideas to keep us busy for the next two or three years. And how do you think about that conceptually? Because, I mean, you just got to think, you know, oh, man, like if there's some company out there with 50 people and they're just totally focused on real estate and here's my company and we're trying to do everything for every country, like how do we beat those guys in that vertical? Well, the multiple differences. I mean, first of all, you could argue we have much more scale because what we do is deployed in many more countries, et cetera. So the cost for us to deploy in, in an extra country or, you know, is actually rather lower than in terms of a focus. Most of these vertical sites actually have a very different business model. Most of these vertical sites charge. And so differentiation number one, I mean, we're free and we're not just mm -hmm. free today until we get scale and then we intend to charge. No, we're free today and forever. You know, our business model is to be free in order to have as many people listing as possible. And therefore, in order to have as much inventory as possible for people who are looking for something in whatever category, in whatever category it may be. And from a you know, product focus perspective, the reality is, first of all, the key verticals are the same in every country in the world. If you're in real estate, you know, it's real estate jobs and vehicles in every mm -hmm. country. And so it's not that complicated. And what you want in cars in France is identical to what you want in cars in the U.S. I mean, you want to know the brand, the model, the options in the car, the year, the mileage it has. In real estate, you know, you want to know the square feet, the price, the number of bedrooms, the number of bathrooms. I mean, mm. it's really the same thing in every country. And so it does give a scale. It's not as though, you know, the resources are focused, you know, or really spread that thin. Yeah. And now there, you know, there are lots of case studies out there of companies that kind of have this great product that works in America. So they say, hey, let's go international. They translate everything. They launch it elsewhere and it just doesn't work. And, you know, they find out there is a reason or not like, is there any trick to it or is it really just translating it and getting the, you know, local top level domain name and then doing some marketing? I mean, for the most part, I'd argue that an idea that works in the U.S. is likely to work in other countries because humans are fundamentally similar. I mean, we humans, we want to be entertained. We want to communicate. We want to have a semblance of meaning in our lives. And so... Something that works in one country usually works in another. I mean, w when I created Auckland, you know, people in France were telling me, oh, crazy. I mean, these Americans, mm. they're nuts. They trade Beanie Babies. We don't have Beanie Babies. We don't care. In the U.S. of garage sale culture, we don't, you know. Besides, we have Minitel. You know, internet will never work here. And even if by some miracle all of these things happen, you know, we'll never put our credit cards online. Or when Mark, my friend, created Metic, the Match.com of Europe, you know, people are saying, oh, it's only for losers. Maybe these guys in America, they're crazy. They'll be on a dating site. We'll never be on it. You know, of course, three years later, everyone was on it. And so things that work in one country typically work in another. Now, that's true. The idea as a whole, it doesn't mean the execution of the idea is identical. I mean, what worked well in eBay in the U.S., like Beanie Babies, obviously didn't work in France. And France was more wines. In the U.S., wines are illegal to trade, you know, cross borders. The category structure is different. The nomenclature is different. The, you know, maybe the payment systems are different, but the fundamental idea is the same. So. In, in our case, in free classifieds, the good news is that most of the categories are rather similar. I mean, there are mm. some differences at the edges. So in India, we have a matrimonial category, which is big. You know, obviously matrimonials don't exist in the U.S. You're not saying, hey, I'm looking for a husband. This is, these are the, my specs for what I want in the husband. This is who I, who I am. 
but it's true in other countries. You know, in the U.S., we have a big casual encounters category, you know, or not in the U.S., but in many Western European countries, obviously in all the Arab world, you can't have any type of sexuality. In most of these countries, homosexuality is illegal, so you can't even offer the categories. So the specific implementation, you know, is different. You, the category names, the categories you have are a bit different. But fundamentally, free classified side, yeah, you do need the local domain name because otherwise people type the .com, they end up on the U.S. site. In that case, you need to be pretty smart, you know, maybe say detect from your IP that you're coming yeah. from Egypt. Did you want to go to the U.S. side? Do you want to go to Egypt? You know, do you want to be in Arabic? Do you want to be in English? I mean, you need to be a little bit smart about the options you give them. And then it's doing, you know, local marketing. And the reality is local marketing for us is Google. I mean, if you want to buy ads and are all around the world, you could try to go into local ad agencies, but it's a pain in the neck. I mean, you don't know who they are. You don't speak the language. You know, we just buy Google. And we don't do the buying ourselves. We use a fantastic SEM shop in France, which is uh, multilingual capabilities. They're called Kiade. And they buy in, you know, millions of keywords in all the different languages around the world. And that's what brings the original group of sellers. We also build, um, you know, sales teams when we need to, to approach car dealers, real estate brokers, and headhunters. And the reality is, these guys, you know, if you tell them, look, we just launched with zero items, with zero buyers, but it doesn't cost you anything. You listen to the site, you know, things, good things could happen. For the most part, people are pretty open to it. They'll just put it on. I mean, why not? Why not listen to Alex? It doesn't cost you anything. And if you sell a car, you, you know, you, you hire the employee you're looking for, you sell the house you're trying to sell, you know, it's great for you. You know, I just had this one question. Like, I imagine you had to buy all the domain names, all the .fr, .ly, whatever, yep. from day one so other people didn't squat them. What'd that cost? Like, how do you do that? So it took us a while, because I actually wasn't the one doing this, to figure out which was the best way to buy all these domain names. And finally, we found one site, which allows you not only to buy all the domain names, but in a lot of countries, to buy a domain name, you need a trademark. So they sell, like, twofer. They, you can buy the trademark and the domain name simultaneously. Mm. It's not cheap. I mean, and they're much more expensive than if you bought it, you know, with a local registrar, et cetera. I think it's like two, $300 a year per domain. And we have whatever, a hundred domains. So, you know, it's 20, 30,000 a year. In our case, you know, given the scale of our ambitions, it was worth it. And that site, by the way, is called Marcaria.com. So M-A-R-C-A-R-I-A.com. I'll link to it from the site. I'm not a shareholder, but it's really fantastic. So it's interesting that if you want to just target the US at seven bucks with GoDaddy, if you want to target the world, Still twenty thirty thousand dollar investment, but yeah, there's I mean, things in the world, right? It depends, right? If you just want to buy, you know, the German domain and the UK domain and the French domain, it's actually rather cheap. You can go, uh, I think, European Registrar Registry dot com into whatever the price of that country is. You know, somewhere between five and thirty five bucks, or maybe fifty a year. So it's pretty cheap. The problem is, as soon as you start going, you know, to more esoteric places, you know, in Latin America, where you know, I think in Colombia, you need to have a company registered and you need to have a trademark or in Malaysia. And our ambition at the beginning was to be truly global. And the reason we chose to be truly global, by the way, is that it's really hard to know why you succeed and where you succeed. I mean, look at Friendster. I mean, Friendster didn't want to be the Facebook of the Philippines. They wanted to be Facebook. It just happened they took off in the Philippines, you know, or Orchid in Brazil. They didn't mm. aim for Brazil. It just happened, you know, or High Five in Peru. And so we're like, you know, we'll launch everywhere and some places will work and we'll take off because we're lucky. And some places we won't take off for whatever reasons. And maybe you competitive or maybe you did something wrong. Hopefully, if we launch enough places, a few places will take off and we'll do well. Mm. So far, it's been true. I mean, we launched in all these countries and we're big in, you know, 10, 15, 20. And we're very happy with, you know, the places we're big and we happen to be maybe lucky a to have grown somewhere, but be that some of these countries are also rather relevant. I'm actually happy mm. or happier and that we're big in, you know, Brazil and Mexico and Spain and Portugal rather than, you know, whatever, you know, Montserrat. 
some country you don't want to visit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, we're pretty big in Pakistan. I, I don't intend to visit Pakistan, but yeah. <laughs> if it was just Pakistan and Bangladesh, you know, it'd be <laughs> a bit less exciting. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. But nonetheless, I'm very happy we're there. I mean, yeah. there's a market need in those countries as well. So in a way, you factored getting lucky into the business plan. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you try to create your own luck. And trying to create your own luck means, you know, you make it, you create a great product. You push a little bit on the marketing. You know, you have a local presence. You try to do BD deals with the local partners, be they, you know, the portals or the social networks, et cetera. But ultimately, you know, it takes luck. And the more sites you have open, the more lucky you can get. Imagine we were only in the U.S., you know, and we'd spend all of our money in the U.S. You could do that and still not succeed because, you know, there are great alternatives. Craigslist is a great site. eBay is a great site. I mean, they have their issues. But, you know, are we better, good enough or better enough that people are really going to give us a chance? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. And it wasn't worth the risk. Whereas you're in 87 countries, you have 87 chances to get lucky. Mm, so it's riskier to focus and sometimes on the web. Sometimes. Not, I mean, not always, but in, in our case, yes. And by the way, it doesn't mean we never focus. It doesn't mean we're spreading our resources in, in 87 countries. It means we try, you know, five countries for three months, see if any of these take off. If one takes off, we continue there and we dump the others. And then, and then we move on to the next five and the next five mm. and the next five. And so ultimately, it's not as that we'll keep pushing and spending money in 87 countries, ultimately we'll spend money and push in 5, 10, 20. I mean, wherever we grow and get scale and we have traction, but you know, it's good. You, you plant the seed everywhere and you put a little bit of water everywhere, but ultimately you see what takes off and you put the fertilizer in the places that are taking off. So tell me about how you finance this business. My partner and I put the first half million in, uh, which was our seed commitment, which basically got us to getting the site live and getting a little bit of traction. Mm. We were considering whether or not to raise VC money or whether, given that I, you know, we'd been pretty successful in the past, we we're going to fund it ourselves, but we wanted to see what prices we could get in the Series A. I talked to a few VCs and actually, I don't think I can publicly say what the valuation was, but let's say we got a reasonably high valuation for a Series A. So I'm like, you know, and we also met really good VCs that I really got hit it off with. One is a personal friend whom I'd known for, you know, since 1996. So now I've known him, you know, for 13 years. And the other one is a venture capitalist whom I met in Boston randomly. You know, and we were actually, we had already selected another VC that we were probably going to work with, but I loved him so much. I'm like, you know what? I want you uh, to invest and to be on the board. And their names were respectively uh, Jeremy Levine from Bessemer, who's my personal friend for 13 years, and Joel Cutler from uh, General Catalyst. And both are fantastic in different ways. But Joel is a guy I met in Boston, you know, I never met him before. And I'm like, wow, this guy's really smart, fun, thinks big. It's going to be a pleasure mm. to work with. You know, I need to work with these guys. We agreed and we raised uh, a 10 million Series A round in the fall of 2006. Uh, I mean, there were also a whole bunch of angels that co-invested and also another mm. small fund in, in the UK called DN Capital that invested in that round, but basically co-led by General Catalyst and Bessemer. And then we used that money to do well, a few things. We hired a bunch of people. We spent some money marketing to in the different countries, start testing which countries we're going to succeed in or not. And we also did a fair amount of M&A. We bought a, a pretty big site in Spain. Actually, it wasn't that big when we bought them. It was called Mundo Anuncio. And we, once we bought them, we changed a few things, made it much bigger. So it's mundoanuncio.com. I guess that's, we did that for 18 months. And, you know, in early 08, I felt that, A, the markets were likely to turn and having more cash was better than not having the cash. And we'd already gotten a fair amount of traction. So I decided to raise uh, an additional round. We raised another 18.5 million. 
both from uh, the original investors and, and and a few other VCs. Oh yeah, and, and and the original investors there was also the Founders Fund, which was Ken Harry, Sean Parker, Peter Thiel, etc. All the and, former Facebook guys. Yeah, the Facebook. I mean, oh, sorry, exactly. the PayPal guys. The former PayPal guys, exactly, who are investors in Facebook, yeah. and LinkedIn, and many other companies. And so, um, did a Series B of eighteen point five million the spring of uh, 08. And again, we've used that money for M and A, more marketing growth, et cetera. And we still have most of that in the bank and things are going pretty well. I think it was Zingy. Did you, did you have a board with Zingy? I know it was just some angel money that you had there or not really. It was just you. I don't remember if we had a board. I'm one of my friends from my McKinsey days. One of my closest friends might have been on the, on the board. I think our board interactions were limited to, you know, we'd go play racquetball or tennis or video games yeah. and we talked a little bit about the business and, you know, that was that. So it didn't really have a formal board, board meeting. I mean, we didn't have investors so, and all the investments were in common shares at the time, not even preference or anything. So it wasn't very structured. Obviously with oil access, uh, there's a board, Joel and Jeremy on the board and Alec and I are on the board. So it's a four person board and works very well. I mean, we agree in everything and, and it's really mm-hmm. a love fest. <laughs> do you find that there is, I guess my question is, do you find there's value to the board meeting aside from just keeping your investors on the same page with you, which is important? Or does it actually give you like better insight and change the way you're looking at the company and make a difference? So here's what people should expect from VCs. I mean, do I think VCs can help you do partnerships? Yeah, for the most part, no. You know, do I think VCs can help you, especially if you want to go international? For the most part, no. They don't, you know, they're analysts and they have a lot of smart guys there, but they don't speak the languages. They're not necessarily connected. Are you VCs useful? Absolutely. Beyond, you know, reportings and giving you cash? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So there are two things I look to the VCs for. I'll start with the least important, or the less important, not the least, the less important one, and then the most important one. The less important one is they're extremely good at helping you hire. I mean, they have a great network of people they know. They also are really good at, you know, checking references. So they, when you hire someone who's worked in, you know, the internet community, it's probably worked for a company or they've been involved with some way or shape or form. They're very fantastic for reference checking, et cetera. So for senior level appointments or hires, they're really good. More importantly, though, for strategic thinking. So... Not the last board meeting, which was yesterday, but the board meeting before that, you know, Joel said, hey, take a step back. Assuming that, you know, it's nice all the reporting you're doing, but assuming that all the execution you do is perfect, you know, what is it that you should do to create as much value as possible for the shareholders? Is it what you're doing? I mean, where is value fundamentally going to come from? And I think even though it's a simple question, and it's a question that as a CEO, you know, you're in the mud every day in the trenches, you know, thinking about the product, doing partnerships with M&A, you rarely take a step back and start thinking, okay, strategically, what is going to be the key driver of value here? What is going to make this, you know, much more valuable than otherwise it could be? And so taking a step back and having, you know, and brainstorming with them and how we create value, how is actually been extremely valuable. And so I think having people to bounce ideas off is extremely valuable because the reality is when you're an entrepreneur, it's rather lonely. I mean, most of the people you've hired, you've hired for functional reasons. I mean, the head of marketing, he's there to do marketing. The head of tech is going to be tech. You know, he's not the guy you usually brainstorm about how do we create value. You're going to brainstorm about specific problems and you're going to solve these problems, but it's not necessarily as strategic as it might otherwise be. So either you have, you know, advisors who are friends, you know, from McKinsey or whatever, or smart guys that you trust, or in, in my case, I have the board that I can bounce off ideas off. With Zingy, it ended up being all of your money and a little bit of other people's money, but you really had it on the line. Yeah. Now it's other people's money, I guess, OPM, as they say on Wall Street. Does that change how you think about, you know, risking capital? Like, does it make you bolder? Does it maybe make you spend a couple of bucks to save yourself some time? It definitely makes me bolder, but that's also what my VCs wanted. I mean, I, when I did this, I was like, guys, I've already made a lot of money making another whatever, 5, 10, 20 million, you know, is nice, but you know, it's not worth 
that's not worth getting out of bed for, but it's, it's not that exciting. I mean, what I've not done so far and I've always been dying to do is build something huge. You know, can we build a sustainable multi-billion dollar company that either we keep private or we take public, but something huge and fun and really game changing. And so basically trying to hit a home run. And so with OLX, I'm taking more risks than I would have been, you know, in the past, because in the past, A, we didn't have the cash to take more risks, but also because it's more fun. And so I have much less of OLX than I had uh, of Zingy for two reasons. One, of a partner. So obviously you split the equity with him. And B, we've raised a lot of money. And so you need to give money shares to your mm-hmm. investors. And so OLX now is only going to make sense if I can get a huge exit, which means I need to hit a home run. But by raising that much cash, by doing all the M&A, you know, we've increased your probability of hitting our home run. I'm willing to take more risks and increase the probability of, of hitting our home run, even if it also increases the probability of making nothing ultimately at mm-hmm. the same time. Which it does because all of a sudden, you know, we have all these liquidation preferences before we, we can get any money back, et cetera. And so the probability that I'll make zero is higher, but the probability that I'll make a lot and conjointly meaning that I will build a really big and fun companies has also increased. And so, yeah, it allows me to take a lot more risk. And I think that's what I've wanted to do. And that's what I love about this. It's not necessarily true for all entrepreneurs. I mean, some entrepreneurs. Now they have their reputation on the line. It's like, you know, they had a huge success. Do they really want to put their reputation on the line and maybe have a, a failure? The reality is, you know, I think that success has given me enough confidence that I don't care. Even if this company is a failure, I know that I'll have tried as hard as I can. And if we fail, I mean, maybe it's because someone did better than us, spent more money than us, or we made a big strategic mistake, but at least we'll have tried. I mean, uh, we'll put it on the line and we'll, mm. we'll have gone for broke. You know, hopefully we succeed. What do you think right now is the biggest risk to succeeding? You know, you look in the news now and they're calling someone the Craigslist killer. You couldn't imagine. And Craigslist is still making money, but what an awful thing to have the press brand you that way. You know, is that something you view as a risk? Do you think something else out there is a bigger risk? So I don't think that, you know, people misbehaving online is going to be the issue because the reality is Craigslist actually, and, and we also try to limit prostitution. We try to limit fraud. We spend a lot of time, you know, deleting bad ads, you know, reporting to the police. People are trying to do scams. You know, we save all the IP addresses. I mean, people are trying to do bad things. You know, we try to, A, avoid them because they provide a bad user experience. But actually, we will actually proactively work with police forces to get them arrested. And so, you know, if you look at what Craigslist probably did in this case, I mean, it's not really their fault. There are millions of ads. Someone put an ad that led to something bad. And they put everywhere, you know, we are not responsible. You know, don't do anything illegal. It's bad things happen once in a while. But the reality is, as long as we do a good job at trying to limit that, put in the fringes, you know, even though what happened is horrible, I don't think that'll be a real threat to the business. Maybe it'll it actually serve as a wake up call for Craig to realize that he needs to be even more proactive mm-hmm. than he has been in limiting scam and and things like that. Now, our threats, you know, if I look at the OLX side, I guess they come from multiple sides. So one is you know competitive. We have one company in in Europe who's a competitor, which is a publicly traded Norwegian group. I mean, they go in some countries and they're like, you know what, we're going to spend ten million a year in TV advertising to win the market. And they've done that in uh, France, and they blew out the guys who were the OLX of France. They were number one. They were doing well, et cetera. And that's like, boom, blew them out of the water. They went in in Italy, and they did the same thing. Now, hopefully, they're not going to do it in any countries we're in. They just launched in Portugal, which is a, you know one of our, t- our second largest countries, which worries me a bit. But so far, they haven't done TV. So, hmm. A, competitive. You know, some guys can say, you know what? We have a billion dollars to throw at this business. We really want to go and win. And you know we'd rather do it on our own rather than you know buy OLX. So. There is competitive threat, though I think in the long run, it might be mitigated by the fact that most of the guys are willing to spend that type of money. I mean, they have to charge. I can't imagine they're going to stay free by spending 10 million years in TV advertising. It's just 
not a sustainable business model, maybe with a credit crisis, maybe even less so. Mm. The second risk is more market risk. For OLX to be really big, we need the advertising business model to be valid, the search advertising specifically business model to be valid, and the CPMs to converge between the countries we're in and the developing world. So our CPMs in the U.S. you know can be as high as twenty dollars. Our CPM in the Philippines is like fifty cents, and Vietnam is one penny, and you know in Latin America is like between eighty cents and one or two dollars. And you know for OLX to really succeed, not only do we need to be big in traffic, but we also need CPMs to be, you know, to con- start converging with the U.S. CPMs. And the bet we were making was that GDP per capita and GDP growth in the developing world was greater than the developed world, and therefore marketing as a percentage of GDP would increase, and therefore an online marketing as a percentage of marketing would increase, and search marketing as a percentage of online marketing would increase, mm-hmm. and all these things combined were going to push CPMs up. Of course, the crisis, you know, if anything, CPMs have been falling. The developing world has been hit especially hard because the local currencies have devalued against the dollar. And so obviously the ads we're selling by or Google selling on our behalf mm. are sold locally in local currency. But obviously our revenues are in dollars. So, you know, the Brazilian real is down 40%. And the peso in Mexico is down 40%. Their euro is down 20%. Mm. And the Russian ruble is down like 30%. And all these are the currencies where we're actually making our money. And so all of a sudden our dollar revenues are going mm. down 30% or 40% just because the currencies are devaluating. So there's a fair amount of market risk. My instinct is the bet we've made is still the right one. I mean, these markets are going to grow and, and marketing in these countries is going to grow and ultimately the CPMs are going to converge. The question is, how long is it going to take? Is it two or three years, in which case we're going to be a huge success? Is it seven years, in which case we'll be a success, but it's just going to take a long time and, you know, we're ready for that? Or is it 20 years, in which case, you know, we're probably going to go bankrupt and be paupers? So, by that said, I started this company knowing it would take a long time. I, I thought this was like a 10 year plus endeavor. We're three years in and I think it has at least five, seven years to go before we actually reach an interesting scale. I mean, between the creation of Craigslist in 94 and then being interesting scale in the U.S. was like 10 years. I mean, it was 2004, but eventually it accelerates. And we're hoping to do it in less than 10 years, but it's at the very least going to take five or six. And then in terms of how your budget to buy the keywords to get the traffic, what percent of that goes to Google? Almost all of it. I mean, not all of our budget, but all of our marketing essentially goes to Google. We've tried advertising, you know, on Google and MSN, on Yahoo, on banners and et cetera. But the reality is, first of all, internationally, Google is much higher market share than the U.S. In the U.S., Google is about 60% market share and Microsoft and Yahoo and Ask of, you know, the rest. So in AOL, so, you know, it's 60-40. But if you go to most countries in the world and like Peru, Chile, Portugal, whatever, it's 90 plus percent Google. So first of all, there's no alternative. And then B, I can describe to you in one minute why Google has won that business and the other guys have lost. If you want to buy keywords globally in Google, you know, it takes a few minutes, you open your account, boom, you're buying globally. And you have one API to basically optimize your campaigns. On Yahoo, you know, you sign up in the US, you send back references, you're waiting two weeks for them to call you back. Eventually you have your account open and they have a platform to optimize. So you're all happy. Now you want to advertise in, you know, Brazil and they say, oh, well, another sign up. Another bank reference checking takes another two to three weeks. And then all of a sudden, the platform to buy in Brazil is different from their U.S. platform. It's a different version of Panama. And then you go to Chile. And again, bank references, new account takes a month. You need to talk to people. And then it's a different platform. It's not even Panama. So they have multiple platforms in different countries. You need multiple openings, bank references, different people to work with, different ways to optimize the campaigns. I mean, you're going crazy. And all that for much less volume than you can get in Google. So, you know, eventually you give up and you just do Google. We have one marketing guy. Our entire marketing department is one guy and he can buy globally in all countries, uh, you know, in Google, or he can, you know, go crazy trying to do three countries in the aisle. We just, 
doesn't make sense. So ultimately, it's Google. And also the ROI is just better. Their targeting mm-hmm. algorithm is better. And so even when we buy lower CPCs on uh, Yahoo or, or Microsoft, we usually end up with a lower CPA. So ultimately, a cost per action on Google uh, mm-hmm. than we do on the other side. So for us, mm-hmm. it's all Google all the time. I mean, all of our revenues is Google. All of our marketing spend mm-hmm. is Google. But now this leads me back to the beginning where you said, you know, one of your rules and, and you were fooled to violate it with Zingy is to rely or to be vulnerable to margin compression. And here it's like before you were in between big media companies and uh, big carriers, but now you got the same guy on both sides, right? But it's not at all what I expected, right? Because the way I saw it is like, okay, any one seller on OLX, you know, a car dealer or even individual looking for, you know, a nanny or offering his couch for sale or whatever is very small. Any one buyer on OLX, you know, who's mm. just an individual looking for something, again, is very small. It never occurred to me that we'd be that dependent on Google. But the reality is, if Google wasn't around, we might not be around either. I mean, so mm. it's a curse and it's a blessing as well, because the alternative to Google, and it exists, is I can go in every country. And build a sales team that starts selling advertising per category locally in that country. And same thing on the, on the media buying side, we can go and work with ad networks and ad agencies in every country and buy advertising there. Could it be done? Absolutely. But it would be a lot of work. It wouldn't be just one guy. And it's just not worth it at the scale. I mean, by that said, is it a risk that we depend on Google? Yeah, to some extent. But I'd like to believe that the fact that there is an alternative, which actually is going locally and selling the ads and going locally or buying ads means that they, I mean, yes, they have pricing power and they probably take half the revenues from us, but half is worth it. You know, the, the mm. day that we started seeing that it's, they're taking too much, we'll have to look for alternatives. And, and the featured listing things that I described earlier is a step in that direction. I mean, People buying, you know, promotion or premium placement in our site directly from us, you know, is a, it's a compliment so far, not a substitute to Google, but, you know, should the, you know, Google really try to screw us, we probably push it more in the substitute category, maybe not even show Google ads anymore. But I'd like to believe that their interests are aligned with mine. I mean, if Mm. we make a lot of traffic, we make them a lot of money, we make a lot of money, they make a lot of money. And so I'd like to believe that as long as our interests are aligned, they'll be happy, we'll be happy. But yeah, is it something I worry about at night? Absolutely. Is it a risk for my business? Absolutely. It's uh, one of the things that that worries me. But I I think every site that is in the direct-to-consumer space that needs to sell advertising, you know, is probably in my my shoes worrying about Google. And I'd love for there to be an alternative. But in the meantime, you know, I'm pretty happy because if they weren't there, we wouldn't be around either. So I guess you're always dependent on somebody, even if yeah, I mean, you don't know it's coming. Exactly. I mean, you, people are like, oh, you're so lucky. You're CEO of an internet company. You don't depend on anyone. Well, yeah, maybe. But, you know, <laughs> I have shareholders. I have a board. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have employees who look up to me. You know, we have customers we need to keep happy. You're, there are always people you depend on, you know, and, and there are always pressures on you. So let's talk now about the future. Like, so unlike our last interview, you're not walking off the job tomorrow. What? You know, how far out are you thinking? Are you thinking about what you're going to try next week? Have you, you know, what's in store? We basically planned out, you know, the next until November, but we have a million ideas. I just realized we're brainstorming today and realized a few ideas we've forgotten to put in the plan that we need to sneak in somewhere. But if I look at my ideal, you know, wish list of companies I want to buy, there's like 20, you know, on the list. So in uh, June, I'm going to go and basically fly around the world and meet every one of them, you know, to go mm-hmm. to London and Barcelona and, you know, Lisbon and, you know, the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Poland, well, Warsaw, et cetera, and just go meet all of them, you know, and tell them we're there and we'd love to work mm-hmm. with them. And, you know, wouldn't it be fantastic to work with a great team of people and conquer the world together? And, you know, one plus one equals 10. And hopefully, and, and I truly believe that's the case, by the way, but uh, hopefully enough people believe in that story and pitch that they'll join us and mm-hmm. be part of the OLX family. 
So that's the plan for June, July. And, you know, we have a lot of partnerships, people we can run classifieds for that I'm going to try to meet at the same time. And, uh, so, you know, I'll be at Olax for the, I think the long term. I mean, I leave a company or I sell a company when one of two things happens. One is if all of a sudden it becomes boring. If we're going to become boring, I mean, maybe for whatever reason, we just don't grow anymore. Maybe the company has reached a plateau and we just can't get to the next level. I mean, whatever reason, be it competitive, be it market, all of a sudden, you know, it's just a company you want to manage, not for growth, but you want to manage it for maximizing the operational efficiency. At that point, you don't need me. You know, at that point, you fire 95% of the employees, you maximize the cash flows coming from it. And, you know, great. But hopefully that'll never happen. I mean, I'm, I'd like to believe we'll keep growing forever and therefore I'll be here forever. I mean, if I need to be here five, seven, 10, 15 years, you know, as long as we're going in the right direction, absolutely. I'm up for it. The second case in which I can sell the company is if someone makes me an unreasonable offer. So if you offer me today what I think the company could be worth in two years, so you're basically giving me a risk-free proposition on what I think is a risky, you know, potential valuation in two years, of course, I'll consider it. And so do I think that's likely to happen in this market environment? Hell no. You'd be crazy mm. to offer me the type of money I'd want. You know, I think this company could be worth in a few years. But if someone, you know, <laughs> wants to spend a couple hundred million dollars, yeah, why not? But do you I never know who's listening to this podcast? Yeah, un- unlikely. <laughs> And frankly, I love what I do. I mean, look at this differently. OLX, by formation, meaning at both at heart and by my degree at Princeton is in economics. I love marketplaces. I love making markets more efficient. And basically, I'm going into countries where the only alternative is spending $100 plus, because even in poor countries, it's $100 plus, to get an ad, to find an apartment or a job or a car. And that was it. And all of a sudden, I'm creating a marketplace that's free, where you basically can do anything. You can find anything, you can offer anything, be it a service, be it a good, et cetera. So I'm making markets more efficient, more liquid, easier, and for free. I mean, as an economist, it's like the dream job. I mean, I'm making the world a better place and I'm bringing a little bit of, you know, utility and, and efficiency in, in a lot of people's lives. I mean, every month, you know, indirectly, our OLX employees and myself are touching the lives in a small way, but in a small positive way, I hope, of 70 million different people. And I think this is a fantastic thing. And so, do I think I could do this for the rest of my life? Absolutely. You know, and ideally one day we'll be touching the lives of hundreds of millions, if not a billion people. And then, you know, I feel we're doing something mm-hmm. fantastic. So last question. World today is very different place than it was in uh, 2005 when you were planning this out. So, you know, what's your advice to people out there now trying to kind of scheme up their business idea, budding entrepreneurs who want to figure out what to do, kind of given the economic crisis and everything that's going on? What's your advice to people who are, you know, out on the street the way you were when you were getting started? I would argue today's probably the best time to start a new company. In good days, when you have an idea, you know, it's going to be replicated by 50 other people. There's so much cash available that you're all competing away, basically, the profits. And so very few people are going to be able to, are going to start a company today. And so you're going to have much less competitive pressures. You're going to have much more time, basically, to grow it. Uh, you just need to be careful with cash because basically you're likely not to be able to raise any cash. And so you're going to have to build it the slow way. I mean, keep the burn as low as possible. If money becomes available, even a couple hundred K or 50 K, take it and just take your time. Keep the cat burn low and, you know, keep at it. And when the market recovers in two, three, four, five years, and we'll see how long you'll be in a perfect position because you'll have actually laid the groundworks for what will lead to something extremely successful. So, you know, my recommendation is if you have an idea and. This is the best time to do it. So just do it. Well, Fabrice, thanks for coming on again. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Venture Voice. I'll be coming back at you with a new episode 
in two weeks. Please help spread the word. Leave a great review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me know what you think. Tweet at me or hit me up on Instagram. I'm just at Gregory. I signed up early. I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.